welcome to the Good Chemistry Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Bob Stickold. Dr. Stickold is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, where he studies the nature and function of sleep and dreams from a cognitive neuroscience perspective with an emphasis on memory processing. He also investigates alterations in sleep-dependent memory processing in patients with schizophrenia, autism, and PTSD. Dr. Stickhold and I talked about various aspects of sleep, dreams, and memory, and how all of those things interrelate with one another. That includes everything from how sleep architecture looks, the different forms of sleep like non-REM and REM, when dreaming occurs, the types of memory processing that happen during sleep and at different types of sleep. We talked about how sleep changes over the course of our lifetime, how it varies across different animal species, and we talked about different aspects of sleep in terms of drugs that affect sleep negatively, as well as different disease states and how those relate to sleep and memory processing. As always, if you enjoy this content, please like, share, or subscribe. You can become a monthly patron on Patreon for as little as $5 a month, and you can subscribe to the podcast in video format on YouTube. In May, in a couple of months here, the video podcast will get an upgrade on YouTube so that the video quality is better than it is today. Otherwise, you can download the audio version of the podcast, which has slightly higher quality audio. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Bob Stickle. Professor Bob Stickhold, how are you? I'm good. How are you today? I'm good. Where are you calling in from? Boston. And can you tell everyone a little bit about your background and what you do? Sure. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, and for the last 25 years, I've been studying the role of sleep and dreamings in emotional and memory processing. Fascinating. I think one of the things that's so interesting about sleep to everyone pretty much is on the one hand, we're all intimately familiar with it because it's something that we participate in and experience every single day. And yet, despite that fact, it's still so mysterious exactly how dreams work and why we're sleeping. It's obviously got some sort of recuperative benefit that everyone intuits, but I don't think we've fully worked out exactly what's going on in the brain. And I would love if you could start out by just talking a little bit about what actually happens. What is the brain doing at a high level every night when we go to sleep? Well, it's doing an immense amount. And this is stuff that we have becoming, been becoming more and more aware of over time. Um, at the simplest level, what the brain does is it shuts off all of its inputs from the outside world, or the vast majority of them, we still have some, some minor awareness or ability to perceive events in the outside world, but we're not aware of them. In fact, our awareness of who we are and where we are pretty much disappears, and we go into a, a, a mental state of, um, of isolation, where we don't know what day it is, what year it is, where we are. We just sort of hang out and, and we dream. And at that same time, our brain is doing immense amounts of, of calculating and, and processing of, of the events of our day. So one way to describe it is that evolution has calculated that for every two hours, the brain spends taking in new information from the world around us. It literally has to go offline for an hour 
to just figure out what all of that information means. So we're awake for 16 hours and we need eight hours to figure out what all that means. And so that's a large part of what the brain is doing. And how does that process of figuring out what happened while we were awake, how does that relate to the architecture of sleep and the fact that we're actually oscillating between different types of sleep when we are asleep? Yes. So one of the strangest things about sleep, only discovered in the 1950s, is that we don't just fall asleep and go into a state of sleep. Sleep consists of a series of oscillating states of brain function uh, that's referred to as the REM cycle because it's, it's uh, most evident in, in REM or rapid eye movement sleep. And it's a 90-minute cycle that we go through every um, night. And every 90 minutes, we go into deeper and deeper parts of sleep. And then our sleep lightens up and we enter REM sleep for a while and we go back down and we do these oscillations all night long. And it's been something of a mystery as to why the brain would want to do this, what's different about these states. And what I believe at this point is that the main driver for these different states is that, well, we're trying to answer very different kinds of questions while we sleep. So I think the best explanation for why we have these different brain states across the night is that the brain is trying to solve different classes of problems. So most of my work has been looking at memory processing, and we know that sleep enhances our memories from the day before, but processes it in other ways too. And you can imagine that one thing that sleep does is if I learn to type some piano piece in the evening, my brain will actually rehearse that and I will be better at it the next morning. At the same time, if I've learned a series of French verbs in the evening, I will be remembering them better the next morning than if I had learned them in the morning and been awake all day after the same amount of time. And as you can imagine, the ideal brain state for processing words is going to be different than the ideal brain state for processing motor activity. And so we probably evolved these different brain states to say, just like you have, you know, you get to high school, you got a different teacher for chemistry than you have for English because they don't understand each other's specialties. Um, the brain basically is putting us into different classrooms, if you will, as we go across the night to help us learn to improve our knowledge about different subjects. Hmm. So what are those different classrooms that we go into? You mentioned rapid eye movement sleep, but can you walk through the different sleep stages and how they look different in terms of the underlying neurophysiology? Yes. So do you want me to pop up some slides or no? Um, I would say... No, because it's going to be video, audio only as a well. Lot, a lot right? of people will be on audio only, yeah. Okay. Sorry. So the most obvious changes that we see are in the electrical activity of the brain, which is basically recording of all the nerve cells as, a, as an aggregate and their firing rates and their activity. And what we see is that as we go into deeper and deeper stages of sleep, of non-REM sleep, the firing rates of these 
um, brain cells become synchronized and slower so that uh, early in sleep, you start to see these oscillations in the EEG, the recording of the brain activity, going at about six to eight bumps cycles per second. And then as we go into deeper sleep, we see those waves getting bigger and slower, slowing down to just one or two waves per second, but of much higher magnitude. And the higher magnitude means that more of the cells in the brain are in this pattern of firing together. And that takes us into our deepest sleep, which we also call slow wave sleep because of these large slow waves. And then the process reverses and the sleep becomes lighter, becomes easier to wake us up. The, the oscillations become faster. And then we transition into REM sleep. And in REM sleep, the EEG is completely desynchronized. You don't see much of any wave activity at all. In fact, it looks very much like it does during wake. And of course, your eyes start popping back and forth at the same time. And so you have some REM sleep, and then you go back down through the stages of non-REM sleep, and you come back up for another REM period. And this goes on all night long. Now, that's the EEG, but we're seeing other things change too. If you look at the major neuromodulators in the brain, you, you know these guys. It's serotonin, it's uh, dopamine, it's, it's epinephrine, norepinephrine, acetylcholine. These modulators of brain activity, they're shifting too. So uh, levels of norepinephrine release and, and serotonin release. And of course, we know serotonin from the SSRIs, which enhance their activity. Um, a lot of antidepressants work to enhance norepinephrine's activity. When you go into REM sleep, their release is completely shut off. Hmm. It's just the brain is switching to a different program. It's like you're coming out of Excel and going into Word. I don't know quite how to describe it. But the whole way that the neurons in the brain are talking to each other is globally changed. And when we look at the memory processing, we see that in slow wave sleep, when you've got those large synchronous firing of huge proportions of the neurons in the brain, when that's happening, the brain is really good at, at stabilizing and what we call consolidating facts that we've learned during the, the day. So those French verbs, that's when my knowledge of the French verbs gets locked into my brain reliably. But if I've learned other things like how to play some puzzle game that I haven't quite mastered yet, where the, I'm still trying to figure out how do all these pieces that I learned during the day fit together, that's what gets processed during REM sleep. REM sleep is about creative processing. And creative just means you know, taking information and finding new ways that it fits together. It does creative processing. It does emotional processing because emotional processing isn't just about remembering French verbs. It's about understanding all the implications of some evo emotional event for me and for my life. And so this basic division between non-REM and REM seems to be non-REM is good for like straightforward strengthening, consolidating, maintaining, stabilizing memories about facts, or even how to do things like that piano playing. 
And REM sleep, which, by the way, evolved much, much later in, in the animal world, REM sleep is about how things fit together. And that's a very different process. In fact, you know about it in your own life that there are times, you know, when you're, when you're, you're tired in the evening, you might not want to be memorizing verbs. You might want to be just trying to think more globally about things because your brain states are shifted. So we have these different brain states within sleep. You've got non-REM sleep. You've got REM sleep. They have different patterns of brain activity, and they have different amounts of neurotransmitters that are active at those times. So to use your classroom analogy, it's like two completely different classrooms that you go into, and you're really good at learning one type of thing in one classroom. You're much better at learning another type of thing in a different classroom. It also strikes me that it's important you know, important for learning is not only remembering things that are useful, but forgetting things that are not useful. So what role do these processes play in helping us forget or get rid of the things that are not important? That's a wonderful question. And there's still, there's still disagreement or confusion about this because of its complexity. We know, for example, that if you have people looking at slides, slides that have some background scene with an emotional central object on it, maybe a car crash or, or a dead cat in the middle of the street. Over the day, if you look at these pictures in the morning, over the day you tend to forget all that detail. You forget the backgrounds, you forget the central um, features, central objects, you forget about your, your ability to recognize them again drops by about 10 to 15% across the day. Across a night of sleep, interestingly, you hold on to those central emotional objects and forget the background. Now, whether this is an active process, whether the brain is sort of saying, okay, I want to forget this and then do something to cause that memory to be forgotten, or whether the brain is just saying, okay, I care about this central object. I'm going to preserve it. I don't care about the other parts. And so they just get forgotten by a sort of passive process. Um, we're not sure whether that forgetting is active or passive, but, but a lot of forgetting occurs across the night. My, my brother once told me he knew why he slept. He said, I sleep to forget where I parked yesterday. So at the end of my day today, when I come out of work, I'm not confused about where I parked. I've forgotten yesterday's parking spot, and I remember where I parked today. So whether that forgetting is just the exigencies of time and all memories slowly get forgotten and they get forgotten across sleep as well, or whether sleep is actually picking out memories and saying, you, out. We don't know how to tell that. We certainly don't ever see faster forgetting across the night than we do across just a period of wakefulness. Hmm. So we don't know yet if there's active and selective forgetting. What about active and selective remembering? So you mentioned that certain stages of sleep are good for consolidating certain forms of learning. Can you talk a little bit about the phenomenon of replay and the idea that some of the actions or things that we're yes. learning are actually replayed at night to help consolidate. Yes, but let me first 
answer what you started to go to was, which was selective consolidation. We know that, remember, I talked to you about playing the piano. Um, we actually have a task where we just teach people to type a, a nasty little five digit sequence 41324 on their keyboard. Uh, and that's a task in which they improve actually over a night of sleep. They're better, they're faster and more accurate in the morning than they were the night before. And if we tell them before they go to bed, by the way, we're done with that task. You're never gonna see it again. Tomorrow morning, we're gonna teach you some French verbs. They don't get better on the finger tapping overnight. Hmm. So the brain decides, calculates, uses some algorithms to determine which memories are going to get processed during sleep and which aren't. And the basic rule in a nutshell is if the brain thinks I'm going to need it again, it's going to work on it. If the brain thinks I'm done with it, it could care less. If I can care less, it can care less. So, so there is this selectivity. And again, before we get to your fascinating replay question, you can watch this process of selection as you're falling asleep. Tell me what you think about it as you're lying there in bed trying to fall asleep. I'm usually thinking about the things that I need to do tomorrow. Right. And the things that didn't get finished today mm -hmm. and the things that, that happened today that you don't fully understand, that you haven't fully processed, but not everything. If you called, uh, if you sent an email to someone during the day, when you're lying in bed, you don't say, oh, I've forgotten his email address. What was his email address? You don't worry about that as you're falling asleep. It's things that are unfinished. It's things that need more work that are going through your mind. And they're probably going through your mind because that state, and if you pay attention, it's a weird little state that you're in. Um, it's actually queuing up those topics for later processing during the night. It is selecting, if you will, what you're going to dream about and what Aside from dreaming, what your brain is going to be working on outside of your awareness entirely. So if, if you're going to be tested on that finger tapping task in the morning, you're going to say, oh, geez, I wonder if I'll still, you know, and your brain will work on it. But it's also, you know, it's also the conversation you had with someone where they said, so I hear you're going to try to get this up onto YouTube tonight. Ha, huh? good luck. And it's like, is he saying good luck in that sort of do well sound? What did he mean by that? Right? You get these, you just got these leftover comments from people, these leftover things you saw. You watched the news and there was a story that bothered you in a way you didn't get to think of at the time. And it comes back as you're falling asleep. So that's a time that your brain um, is sifting through the day to decide what to work on later at night. And the way it works on it, in many cases, is to bring the memory back up. This is the replay you were talking about. With that finger tapping task, um, it can be shown to various degrees, depending on whether you're working in animals or humans or in, and the exact task you're doing, that the brain replays the actual experience. So if you run a mouse through a, a maze before they go to bed, 
the the part of the brain called the hippocampus actually comes up with um, identifies specific cells that reflect the position of the mouse in the maze. And if you record with electrodes in the brain of this mouse, you can just watch the electrodes on your computer screen, the electrical activity, and know where the mouse is in the maze. You think, oh, it's halfway around. Look, it's halfway around. Oh, okay, that cell stopped firing. This cell started firing. He's moved around to here. That mouse falls asleep, and they're running the maze again in their brain. You can see those brain cells firing in that same pattern again. Hmm. And or so you can, if, yeah. if you disrupt that process, do you prevent the memory from forming? It hasn't been done at that level in the mouse because usually with those rodent studies, to get the effect strongly enough that you can see it, they've been run through it many times and they've basically learned it. But we know from human studies that you can reactivate memories by cueing them while they're asleep. I mentioned at the start that some sensory information still gets into the brain, even though we're asleep. And people at the University of uh, Northwestern University, outside of Chicago, did this wonderful study where they had people sitting at a computer, they had a computer screen, and they popped different items up on the screen in different locations and told people that they had to memorize the location of each of the objects. A little bit like that old game of concentration where you had to remember where the different cards were. And the brilliance of the experiment is that each object, which they would see multiple times and always in the same location, came with a sound. So a cat appears up here and they hear meow and a a horn appears down here and they hear honk honk and a hammer appears over here and they hear bang bang. And they're learning the locations of the objects. And then when they're asleep, the researchers play half the sounds to them. Hmm. They reactivate the memories by playing the sounds again. And when they do that, after sleeping and they test the subjects again, they are better on placing the items whose sounds they had heard while they slept than the other half of the objects whose sounds they hadn't heard. So it must be that when you play that sound of the horn, the brain is hearing that sound, remembering that it was connected to the picture of the car and the car was down here. And so that kind of replay Um, And now they have some sophisticated brain imaging techniques that actually say, yes, the brain activity associated with that item in that location was in fact being reactivated when we played that sound to them in their sleep, that that reactivation seems to be key to um, the brain processes that strengthen that memory. And what about dreaming? What stage of sleep is dreaming normally taking place in? And do we know if the content of dreams, just just from my, my own experience, sometimes it feels like the content of dreams contains things that are important and that I'm potentially trying to remember. My brain is trying to consolidate. And sometimes it seems like the content is completely superfluous Crazy. and has nothing to do with it. So 
are is the content of dreams functionally important in any way is it epiphenomenal is it just all of the is it just an after effect of what else is going on in the brain well two months ago in january i published a book with norton um entitled when brains dream that discusses exactly this question so to take your questions in order we probably dream we definitely dream in all stages of sleep in that night light non-rem in that deep slow wave portion of the night and especially during REM and especially in the first few minutes of sleep, what we call the hypnagogic sleep onset period, um, the very lightest stage of, of, of non-REM sleep. Um, in REM sleep and in that light sleep onset period, if we wake someone up about 80% of the time, they'll recall dream content. Um, but for deeper stages of non-REM sleep, it's still at 50, 60%. So we're probably in fact dreaming all night long, but the content of the dreams and probably the function of the dreams very subtly. So to, to leap to the end and then work back, uh, we've come up with a, a model for the function of dreaming that we call NEXT UP, which stands for Network Exploration to Understand Possibilities. And the argument is that during most of the night when we're doing that kind of memory processing that I talked about earlier, uh, this is happening outside of conscious awareness, outside of our dreams. And it's all about convergent processes trying to answer questions that we understand. Okay, how did I type that sequence? What was that verb form? Um, how do I understand all these different things I learned about this game? How do I pull them together into some general rules? When we dream, we're doing divergent rather than convergent processing. We're not looking for answers to questions. We're doing what we refer to as exploring the solution space. So, um, so you got a job offer. And you know, there's no simple answer many times to should I take the job or not. And in fact, it's not even clear what factors are important in that decision. Is it just about salary? Is it about prestige? Chance for improvement? Chance for advancement? Or is it about how my spouse will respond to having to move? How my kids will do with the change in schools? what my friends will think of me taking this new job, what my parents will think of my taking this new job. All of these, all of these aspects are part of that decision. And we don't know how to weigh them. And we don't, you know, you can make that sheet of paper, right? Take the job, don't take the job, pluses, minuses, and write all these things down. And that never helps. <laughs> Instead, you sleep on it. Right? And you wake up in the morning and you say, I can't take that job. It's just wrong for me. And what you see, if you watch that person now when they're dreaming, they're dreaming about a piece of it. They're exploring memories, often weakly related, distant memories, 
that might be relevant to the decision making. So they might, you know, they're trying to decide whether to take this job. They're looking at their scientists. They're looking at how many square feet of lab space they're going to be provided. Um, they're a teacher. They're looking at how many classes and how large the classes are going to be. But what do they dream about? They dream about a fight they had with their father 20 years earlier. A fight in which the father was complaining about something the son was doing. Or you don't even know in the dream, it's just there's your father and he's saying, why don't you ever do what your mother says? And you don't even know what he's talking. And you don't know what's going on in the dream and it doesn't seem particularly relevant. But your brain when you dream is sort of like a venture capitalist. It's not looking for every investment to pay off big. It's looking for a few to pay off big and it's happy if others don't. So maybe, you know, maybe you come out of that thinking and not even realize that you think that my father, I should talk to my father before I make this decision or excuse me, screw it. I don't care what my father thinks about this. And you might not even remember the dream. Mm -hmm. You might not even know why you're thinking about him in relationship to the job. But your brain has identified this older memory, which in some ways is connected to this decision that you're trying to make, to your current concern. And in this way, it's, case, it's connected because your father and you have had a lot of discussions about what you should and shouldn't do, not so much with your whole life, but maybe, you know, with $5 at the amusement park. But it's, you know, it seems, Bob, that you care a lot about what your father thinks about your decisions. Let's run that by and see how that plays out. So the only way the brain has to determine whether this sort of newly remembered association um, about your father, my father, and decision-making is to literally play it out in a story. That's what we do when we're awake. If you're awake and someone says, hey, there's a good movie tonight, you want to go see it? You say, you say, well, I don't know, I got a lot of work to get done. And then you have this little movie that runs through your brain. <laughs> you imagine going to the movie and then coming back and trying to do the work afterwards and being too tired to do it. And that's not good. And you imagine going to the movie and just not even trying to do the work because it doesn't really need to be done. And that doesn't feel good. And then you decide, well, I can get that work done in time before I go to the movie. And then you say, yeah. And you say, yeah, because you've played out these scenarios and you found one that feels good. Okay. When you play out these stories in your mind, there's always an emotional reaction to it. I like that. Oh, that's not good. I don't like that one. Oh, this one will work. That makes me happy. And that's part of your decision making. That's how you decide whether to go to that movie. I mean, it happens like that. And you say, nah, I really can't. I'd love to, but I can't. But the scenario played out in your mind. The emotional response came to it. You looked at the emotional response and you said, nope, can't do it. Your brain's doing the same thing at night with very specific differences. You remember I said that release of norepinephrine is shut off when you're in REM sleep. Mm -hmm. When that happens, your brain's ability to find associations shifts 
from obvious focal associations, like, okay, this job, I had this other job, teaching in classrooms, okay, I've taught in big classrooms and small classrooms. It shifts from these tight associations to much more distant, weaker associations. And so it's a privileged time when, in fact, your brain can probably find associations that you'd never think of when you were awake. And it does it in a way that also biases the shutoff of serotonin, probably biases your brain towards thinking that those associations are important. It, it has to do with um, a, a bias in terms of, of, of salience and significance. And it looks like it's possible that when that serotonin gets shut off, your brain is more likely to say, oh, this is important. I should strengthen this association. And you need that when you're dreaming because half of the dreams you have, they're so wacky. If you were functioning normally, you'd say, well, this was a totally useless dream. Why would I want to strengthen that association? And so, so the brain is in a state where it's, it is finding weaker associations, is biased towards finding significance in them, the brain, by the way, in REM sleep is also um, shut off from actually remembering the memories from the day. So if you dream about something that happened today, tonight, you don't dream what happened. You don't actually remember what happened in the dream. You wake up in the morning and you say, oh, that must have been about that podcast recording with Bob. But in your dream, you don't replay that podcast because... Literally, the connections between the hippocampus where those recent memories are being stored and the rest of the brain where they can be perceived, that communication is shut off. So it looks like the brain is it's throwing you into a therapy session. Hmm. It's saying, don't, don't tell me about what this guy you were dating, you know, how he was a jerk and how he, he left you and you don't. Tell, tell me what, how that feels to you. Tell me what it reminds you of. Tell me what you think it means. You know, widen your associative networks and say, you know, have you ever felt this way before? So it's, it's almost like that, except in spades. It's just doing it in, 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 in a, uh, a more powerful way and in a more reliable way. I mean, you're guaranteed two hours a night when your brain will do this kind of dreaming association exploration of, of associations to find the ones that are possibly useful. Hmm. So it sounds like dreaming, especially during REM sleep, has a lot to do with contextual processing, um, trying to figure out things that have a lot of contextual complexity associated with them. And you mentioned that we were you know, the brain is sort of exploring the space of possibilities more. And so perhaps the bizarre, weird content of dreams is a consequence of that, that your brain is sort of trying out different possibilities in relation to different memories that may or may not be related to whatever is trying to be worked out. Absolutely. And, and again, there's rim and there's non-rim. And it's, it's kind of fun because for the last 20 or 30 years now, it's been clear that if you wake people up from REM sleep and you 
ask them for a dream report, and then you ask them, um, so why do you think you dreamt that? Or not the whole dream, but like you just had a dream about flying saucers. Why do you think you dreamt about flying saucers? So this person is awakened from REM sleep. They're likely to answer. They might answer, oh, I just have a love affair with pizza. I just love pizza so much. You know, pizza's, pizza's in my mind all the time. It has been forever. So I think I was really just dream, dreaming about pizza. Okay. Now you wake someone else from non-REM sleep and they tell you they were dreaming about flying saucers. And you ask them, why do you think that was? And the answer is, oh, I had pizza last night. So when you wake someone from non-REM and they find, they try to find the waking correlates or causes of their dream elements, they tend to give you recent events. Oh, I had pizza for dinner last night. Oh, I was, my, my son wanted to play Frisbee and I couldn't find the Frisbee. Um, oh, I don't know. We had pancakes for breakfast. Maybe the pancakes reminded me of flying saucers. But it'll be recent events. And you wake the people from REM sleep, they tend to be older memories and they tend to be what we call semantic memories. Things like, I just love pizza or you know, I was never any good at flying um, frisbees. Not specific events, but, but general categories of knowledge. And that fits with the idea, right, that we know from our memory experiments that non-REM sleep is really good for stabilizing, strengthening memories of actual things that you learn during the day. The French verbs is my example. And REM sleep is more about figuring out those puzzles that, that you couldn't figure out how to solve, where you're trying to put things together in a more general way. And, and so the dreaming probably has this different overall function of, of trying to do exploration without coming to a conclusion about the right answers, just exploring the possibilities but still locked by the physiology to be more remote and semantic during REM sleep and more recent and episodic events during, during non-REM sleep. Hmm. Do we know what happens if you selectively deprive someone of one type of sleep or another? For example, are there drugs that inhibit REM sleep or non-REM sleep and what sort of impact might that have? Um, well, if you look at specific memory tests, you know, like in the laboratory, you see exactly what you expect. If you give drugs that enhance REM sleep, then those puzzle solving or emotional memories show more enhancement than they would otherwise show in proportion to the increase amount of REM sleep. And if you're learning those French verbs, uh, drugs or, or other methods that increase that deep slow wave sleep will enhance your memory for those, those word pairs. Um, if you're talking more globally, it's really hard to do. You can 
try to deprive people of REM sleep, and you can do it for a night or two. Not easily with, with drugs at all, but you can do it by literally waking them up every time their EEG indicates that they're starting to go into REM sleep. And whereas normally you don't hit your first REM period until about 90 minutes into the night, an hour to 90 minutes into the night, if you selectively REM deprive someone for a couple of nights, they'll start going into REM sleep as soon as they fall asleep. Their, their brain will fight back. So it's really hard on any sort of um, continued period of time to, to block any sleep stages that the brain will fight back and, and bring them back in. Mm -hmm. So we don't know. Very early on, back in the 50s, when they first discovered REM sleep, they tried to do these REM deprivation experiments and, and had some suggestion that people started to act crazy like. But in retrospect, it, it's probably because after a couple of nights, they had to wake people up five minutes after they fell asleep because they were going into REM so fast and they were really doing total sleep deprivation. And if you've ever pulled an all-nighter, you know you get a little crazy the next day. I mean, it's interesting. You get a little depressed. Mm -hmm. uh, no one wants to be around you after you've only gotten an hour of sleep the night before. Um, and you start to get a little bit wacky. You become emotionally labile. But that's probably more about total loss of sleep than any particular stage. Mm -hmm. What's the connection between sleep, sleep deprivation and a common neuropsychiatric problem like depression, say? I've heard previously that a, an acute treatment for major depression is actually acute sleep deprivation. So is that true? And what do we know about that? And how do things like SSRIs that you previously mentioned affect sleep architecture? So you've raised one of the best or worst questions I can't decide. Um, there are a number of studies over the years that have shown if you have someone who has very severe treatment-resistant depression, they've been tried on a half dozen antidepressants and nothing works, if you sleep deprive them, they get an amazing recovery, not a recovery, but a relief from the depression. They say, oh my God, I don't feel depressed anymore. And that feeling will remain as long as you keep them awake. Now that's not very useful because after a couple of days being awake, you know, they're gonna fall asleep no matter what you try to do. And by that second day, um, or third day, they're not very functional in any other ways. But from a medical and scientific point of view, it's a fascinating question. Why would sleep deprivation do that? And the totally consensual, agreed upon answer is we don't have a clue. We've got no idea. In fact, some of the earlier studies showed that just doing REM deprivation was enough to cause this relief. Hmm. And to add to the story, uh, I mentioned that you usually don't go into REM until an hour, an hour and a half after you fall asleep. People with major depression go into REM earlier. And we don't know why that happens. And we don't know if it's functional. We don't know if it's the brain trying to cope with that depression somehow, which would sort of argue against the data that suggests that 
REM deprivation makes them feel better. But what we can say is that there's a really strong connection between sleep and depression. Antidepressants have varying effects. Most of them, most of the SSRIs uh, suppress REM sleep. They can also suppress that deepest slow wave sleep of the night and sort of leave you mostly with sort of undifferentiated lighter non-REM sleep. Um, is that related to its beneficial effects? We don't know. Is that uh, impairing its potential benefits? We don't know. But but they all because they're all acting on these same neuromodulators that you know I was telling you about earlier. Um, they affect what sleep stages you end up spending your time in. Hmm. I want to talk a little bit about sleep and health, generally speaking. I think. You know, going back to the very first question, everyone understands intuitively that sleep is very important for health. We've all had experiences of how wacky and dysfunctional you can be with just one night of sleep deprivation or even just a few hours of sleep deprivation. But what, what would you say, and I know there's no one answer to this question, but what is the optimal amount of sleep that someone needs and how does someone know if they're getting the right amount? Wonderful questions. The optimal amount of sleep is a bad question because it's. I have to ask you, optimal amount of sleep for what? Mm-hmm. If you're an adolescent, 70% of your growth hormone is secreted during that deep, slow-wave sleep. And the deep, slow-wave sleep comes entirely in the first half of the night. You've got... Most of your REM in the second half mixed with that lighter non-REM. You have all of your slow wave sleep mixed with a little bit of REM and a lot of that lighter non-REM in the first half of the night. So if you're just worried about growing taller, four hours of sleep a night is probably okay. If you want to deal with emotional issues, which tends to happen in REM sleep, most of that REM sleep comes late in the night, you're probably wanting to get eight hours. On the other hand, we also know that if you put someone on four hours of sleep a night for five nights, they start looking pre-diabetic. Their insulin regulation goes completely off. Hmm. So are you talking about enough sleep to remember those French verbs or to secrete growth hormone or to regulate your endocrine function. And by the way, everybody listening up, a single night of sleep deprivation after getting a flu vaccine cuts in half the amount of antibody you produce Hmm. to the vaccine. So if you're going to get the um, COVID vaccine, you want to get good sleep the night after, especially But other studies have shown, again, four hours of sleep a night for several nights before the vaccination severely reduces the amount of antibody you end up producing. So asking how much sleep is optimal is is like asking how much vitamins is optimal. Well, you don't want to say 50 milligrams because that might be what you want for vitamin C, but that's a thousand times more than you want for vitamin K. And you don't want to say 
10 micrograms, which might be all you need for vitamin K because you need a thousand times more of vitamin C. So it's not a, a good question. I would turn instead to your second half of the question. How can you tell if you're getting enough sleep? Because what most everybody does, and this is both people on their own and scientists and sleep clinicians do, is they trust in the brain's own homeostatic mechanism, right? I tell people, if the thought of going to noon without a cup of coffee or the thought of waking up in the morning without an alarm clock strike you as terribly bad ideas, then you're not getting enough sleep. If you're getting enough sleep, you should be able to wake up fine without your alarm clock. You shouldn't need caffeine until mid-afternoon. Um, so, so there's these signals that your brain and body give you. You know, if you wake up and you feel exhausted, well, mm -hmm. duh. Right? You didn't get enough sleep. And it doesn't matter whether you got six hours or eight hours or 10 hours. Um, if you still need that coffee in the morning, if you still need that alarm clock, if you still feel half asleep when you wake up, you're not getting enough sleep. And is it possible? So how much does it matter when in the sleep cycle you wake up? Is that important if you wake up during REM versus non-REM sleep? Probably not. So by morning time, you're not going to have deep sleep. Waking up from deep sleep is ugly. It, it, you feel hungover. Um, you've, you've woken up in the middle of the night and had this experience of almost not knowing where you are, um, of just being totally disoriented. That's waking up from that deep sleep. Um, by morning, it's going to be light non-REM or REM. Um, they're both easy to wake up from, and I think you feel equally good from both. There have been some suggestions that you will feel more alert if you wake up from REM sleep. And so there are a bunch of apps you can get now that try to figure out when you're in REM sleep and, mm -hmm. and wake you up while you're in REM sleep. And if you're in non-REM sleep, you know, let you sleep longer until you go into REM. Uh, I haven't seen any evidence that those are very effective in, in improving your, your condition in the morning. And certainly in regards to any of the deep functions of sleep, whether it's immune or endocrine, memory or emotional, what state you wake up from doesn't matter at all. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I was going to ask you next is all of these sleep apps that claim to track exactly what stage you're in and everything. How, how well are those working? Do they do a reasonably good job at differentiating between how much REM and non-REM you're getting? Or is it really just marketing at this point? There seem to be some devices, some wearable devices coming on the market, low-end products that can actually do a decent job of telling REM from non-REM. Um, that's only been in the last few years, and the data is still coming in from them. I think the main advantage of wearing those Fitbits and such for, for tracking your sleep is to get a sense of how much sleep you're really getting. Mm -hmm. I mean, I talk to these people who say, you know, how much sleep do you get? I ask them, they say, oh, I, I try to get eight hours a night. Uh-huh. And how much did you get last night? And I say, oh, last night was funny. I, I, I had to get something, then I only got six. Oh, and the night before that, well, 
that night I went to bed fine, but uh, I, I had to get up early because I had some work I had to do. I maybe got seven hours. Well, when was the last time you actually got eight hours? And they pause and they say, gee, I don't know. So, so the real value of those devices is to let you honestly see how much sleep you're getting. And they're pretty good at that. Okay. And how much does sleep actually vary from person to person? So if you had a large population of adults that were about the same age and reasonably similar across any major demographic variables that might matter, how much do people vary in how much sleep that they naturally get every night or should, should so be getting? If, if you let people sleep until they wake up, uh, oh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but certainly much more than 90% will fall between six and 10 hours. And probably more than two thirds will fall between seven and, and eight and a half. Mm-hmm. That, that's really where people tend to fall. If you, it, it, it's a hard experiment to do because you have to let them sort of get over their sleep deprivation. So there's a wonderful study at NIH where they had subjects come in for 21 nights in a row or not nights, days, they, they went to bed and they spent 15 hours, I think, in bed. And for the first several nights of this, they were sleeping 12, 13, even 14 hours. But after about two weeks, they were down on average to eight hours and 15 minutes. But you know, they were sort of recovering from all that earlier sleep deprivation. And interestingly, when they get down to that eight hours and 15 minutes, they tell the researchers, I've never felt this good in my life. It's the phenomenon of coming back from a vacation mm-hmm. and feeling like you're, you're turbocharged, that your your brain is functioning at twice its normal speed and everything is working so much better. I don't think that's about relaxing. I think that's about sleeping and catching up on your sleep finally. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you brought that up. The One of the things I wanted to ask about, so, so a couple of things you said earlier struck me. One was your advice for people getting vaccinated. So if you're not getting enough sleep, it actually leads to problems in terms of your immune function. If you're not getting enough sleep, it leads to other problems for memory and other things. And you just mentioned going on vacation and getting recharged. I've actually had that experience. I've also had the experience of going on vacation and not feeling recharged. And I wonder how much of it has to do with things like taking a vacation where you're not getting enough sleep, perhaps because you're going out and partying every night, drinking alcohol. So what's the effect of alcohol on sleep architecture? And what do we know about the potential health consequences of drinking in the evening? Um, There's almost nothing good to say about it. Alcohol will cause you to fall asleep faster. A lot of alcoholics use a lot of alcohol in the evening because that period before sleep when all your concerns rush through your mind is so painful for them. It's so full of upsetting, depressing, worrying thoughts that they just want to get through it. And in fact, Whereas normally when you have those thoughts before sleep, your your brain stays calm, sometimes it gets agitated. And of course, then you have the, uh, you have insomnia, right? You, you suddenly realize, oh my God, I had to submit that 
I, today I didn't submit that. What's going to happen? You know, you can feel the adrenaline rush and you say, great, it's going to be 10 minutes before I can even consider falling asleep now. So, so a lot of people will use alcohol to get them more quickly through that pre-sleep uh, period, that sleep onset period. Um, that might be seen as a good thing, but then it also causes a lot of awakening later in the night, uh, a lot more awakening. So overall, they get less sleep. And alcohol is also a REM suppressant. So insofar as their brain is trying to process all that emotional material, um, it's not going to do as well at it. So yes, so a vacation where you're out partying late, so you get less sleep, where you're drinking, so you're getting less REM sleep, or even in an older age group, when you're going to, you know, 10 countries in 14 days and getting up at six in the morning to get to the airport by eight to catch a flight to get you to your next destination by nine so you can have a whole day there, um, I suspect those are equally unrelaxing or un unrelaxing in the sense of leaving you when you get back home with this sense of replenishment. Interesting. The other drug I wanted to ask you about is caffeine. So how does caffeine affect sleep? It obviously keeps you awake, but if you're drinking a number of cups of coffee in the morning, is caffeine still able to affect your sleep the subsequent evening? Uh, the, the, the general rule is you don't want caffeine after 4 p.m., mm -hmm. assuming you're going to bed between 10 and 12. So that's, you know, you want at least six to eight hours between your last caffeine and going to bed. If you do that, the caffeine is essentially out of your system and not a problem. Now, having said that, I know people who have, you know, a double espresso with dinner and fall asleep in two minutes when they go to bed. Um, it, it varies dramatically from person to person and probably with personal history. Um, but, you know, if you're getting in bed and can't fall asleep for a half hour and you're having caffeine in the afternoon or evening, late afternoon or evening, uh, the first thing to do is cut that caffeine out. I see. So if you're, if you have a few hours in between your last cup and when you go to bed, it's probably fine because your body will have metabolized it. But if you're drinking closer and having trouble sleeping, that's an indication that. Right. Or if you're, if you're, you know, if you're taking caffeine at, at 4 p.m., which is what we would call the last safe time, and you can't fall asleep at night, you know, I'd say, well, try a couple of nights where you don't have any caffeine after noon and see what happens. And you might find, well, I fell asleep easily at night, but I fell asleep at 8 o'clock, too, and I fell asleep at 9 o'clock, too. You know, you're sort of between the true distance so unsure of this, you know, the, some people will need that to get them through to the end of the day. And of course, it becomes a, a vicious circle because they're losing sleep because they have caffeine in the evening. And then they're tired the next day, so they need caffeine. So, you know, doing a little bit of a purge would not be a, a bad way of self-diagnosis.
Interesting. So one of the things I did want to swing back to earlier, you mentioned briefly that the amount of REM and non-REM sleep we get changes across development. And obviously, newborn babies sleep a lot more, young children sleep a lot more than adults. But how does the amount and also the architecture of sleep, the ratio of REM to non-REM change across development? And what, what significance do we think that might have for learning at different stages of life? Well, infants have an adult, an adult will have something like 20% REM sleep, 20% deep slow wave sleep, and 60% that lighter intermediate non-REM sleep. Um, infants can have up to 80% REM sleep. And it sort of suggests that their brain, you know, it's still there that the main job of their brain at that point is trying to figure out how things fit together. Not to memorize a sound they heard, but to understand what sounds are all about. Um, there's a lot of stage two um, in a period where motor development is occurring. And, and indeed, we see increases in, in stage two when we do that finger tapping task. Um, we see that the amount of improvement someone gets overnight depends on how much of that stage two, stage two, sorry, light non-REM sleep they're getting. And as we get older, the amount of slow-wave sleep we have starts to disappear. Um, by the time you're 40 years old, half of that or more is gone. And that seems to be related to the fact that, you know, our memories start to go at that age too. Your ability to remember recent things starts to drop off. And Matt Walker out of Berkeley has shown that if you look at people like 50, I think, to 70 years old, how well they do on these simple memory tasks um, is better predicted by how much slow wave sleep they get than by how old they are. So, so it might be that as you get older, your brain just doesn't memorize facts as well. And that might reflect a system breaking down. You know, your brain can't produce as much slow wave sleep. Or it can be an evolved decision that once you get to a certain age, you're more concerned with being wise than being smart. You're more concerned with working on how the knowledge you already have can be put to use and how it fits together than on learning new things. And that's, that's going to be a really hard question to try to sort out. Um, but that's what we see. We see huge amounts of REM sleep in the first few years of life. And that pretty much drops down to normal levels, I think, by somewhere between five and 10 years of age. And those slow wave um, changes the disappearance of slow wave sleep that actually starts in your 30s um, and, and just continues on uh, throughout the rest of your life. Hmm. So it's, it's not 100% clear whether or not the disappearance of slow wave sleep, say, as you age, is a consequence of not needing that slow wave sleep as much because you already have things versus some sort of deterioration of the mechanisms that allow you to have it. In other words, right. that, it's, that it's part of normal aging. Right. And, uh, and it doesn't seem to happen 
late enough that if it was truly detrimental, evolution wouldn't have dealt with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're still evolutionarily relevant through your 30s at least. And, and if this was impairing your survival, right, that you can't remember these things, these specific types of new information, um, evolution could have taken care of that. It's, it's very good at that. I mean, to show you how good evolution is with dealing with sleep problems, I will turn to the, um, to the whales. You know, whales can't afford to sleep because if they do, they'll sink <laughs> and drown. They have to surface every few minutes to take a breath. So what do these aquatic mammals do? And I'm talking whales, porpoises, dolphins. Well, they have evolved to sleep on one side of their brain at a time. They let their left hemisphere go to sleep and keep the right hemisphere awake. And then after a while, they let the right hemisphere go to sleep and the left hemisphere wakes up. So sleep you know, is, is so critical for survival that when an animal can't afford to sleep, it comes up with this kind of a clue, this kind of a workaround, which must have been phenomenally difficult to evolve. But it didn't evolve just one. Once, if you look at flock, flock birds like ducks, it turns out that at, a night, at nighttime, a flock of ducks will land on a, a pond and so it's all bunched together and go to sleep. And the ducks on the outer edge of that flock will keep the half of their brain that gets input from the outward facing eye awake. Hmm. And then after some period of time, they say, excuse me, and they move into the middle of the flock and push some other birds out to the edge. But again, they keep that situational awareness by evolving a mechanism to sleep half a brain at a time, depending on where they are in this, in this flock of birds on the pond. So parallel evolution with the same goal. If the brain can evolve that mechanism, it could have evolved a mechanism that kept the slow wave sleep up. If you really needed it throughout if it, that entire... If it, you, you don't even have to really need it in the sense that you really need to breathe. I mean, a, a 1% selective advantage, you know, over 100,000 years is enough to guarantee that that 1% advantage will move through the entire population. So even a small advantage would be enough. Um, so, you know, from that sort of argument, you would say that it was okay that, you know, that, it, that, excuse me, that we evolved to sort of drop out some of that slow wave sleep. Mm-hmm. And parenthetically on that same line, even on a night by night basis, the amount of sleep we get in different stages depends on what kind of information we have to process. Mm-hmm. If we teach someone a task that is going to improve overnight, depending on how much REM sleep they get, they all get more REM sleep that night. But if it's the French verbs, they'll get more of that deep slow wave sleep that night. So the brain 
on a night-by-night basis will adjust how much time you spend in what sleep stage, depending on what it calculates is optimal for the work that it has to get done. So you mentioned some animals that have unique sleep patterns based on the ecological reality that they face. I want to ask you about how old sleep is, how evolutionarily old it is. When did, when did it first evolve? Does every animal with the nervous system seem to go to sleep or is this something that evolved later on? Every animal, because they all have nervous systems, Every animal sleeps. And in fact, the issue is not so much whether they sleep, but how we measure sleep. So, you know, you can't look at the EEG of a sponge to try to figure out whether it sleeps. But you can notice that it has a quiet period every night. That it's not only quiet, but it's less responsive to stimulation And if you stimulate it and you keep it more alert, more active, when it would normally be quiet, 24 hours later, it'll spend more time being quiet. And it'll be harder to get it moving again. So we can see these behavioral correlates of sleep um, as far down as we can see. You can even go to the blue-green algae, arguably... The, the lowest um, single cellular animals or plants in that case, you know, around. Um, and they have a 24 hour cycle. You know, they are more, their, their photosynthetic system is cranked up during the daytime when there's more light. And if you keep them in constant darkness, Every time it's light outside, every 24 hours, that cycle of increased activity of the photosynthetic system is seen. So, so the circadian rhythm is certainly seen across all living forms um, because, you know, because life evolved on a planet that has a 24-hour day of light and dark and warmer and darker. Um, and, and so all organisms, all organisms respond to that. And, you know, they not only have their own 24-hour cycle, but if you move them, you know, from Boston to California, they have jet lag, you know, and they slowly shift so that their, their 24-hour cycle adapts to the new location. Um, and as, as early as we have, as early in evolution as we have any way to, get a hint of the possibility of sleep. That's what we see. We see sleep. Hmm. And you mentioned earlier that sleep deprivation and sleep itself can lead to changes in hormone levels. You mentioned growth hormone coming at certain stages of non-REM sleep, I believe. You mentioned that sleep deprivation can affect things like your propensity to develop diabetes. And so I wanted to ask a more general question around sleep in the body. To what extent is sleep a brain and central nervous system phenomenon? And to what extent is sleep actually a phenomenon of the whole body and the rest of your physiology? Are there any interesting uh, facts about human health and physiology in terms of things that are regulated by sleep? Well, you know, us, us scientists are very brainy people. 
So, so we, we, we are often brain centric. Uh, and there is a, there is a, a claim out there that sleep is of the brain and by the brain and for the brain. And that's clearly not true. So I was talking about circadian cycles. You see circadian cycles in the liver, in the intestine, uh, in the lungs, in, in the pancreas, in, in almost all the organ systems, they have circadian rhythms of activity um, that are controlled from the brain, which sort of synchronizes everybody's circadian rhythm. But even in the absence of that, um, that brain input, that nervous system input, all of our organs follow circadian uh, rhythms. And those circadian rhythms have to do with um, less activity at one time of the day or the other. Um, we know that, you know, people who have sleep apnea, which is a sleep disorder where you tend to wake up frequently because your, 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 your throat collapses and you can't get air. Um, that those people are at increased risk for heart disease. Um, so we've got the endocrine system, we've got the immune system, um, we've got the cardiovascular system. Um, I would guess that at some level, all of our organ systems have developed dependencies on sleep. And this, this gets into a, a fun discussion about functions of sleep. And I distinguish between core functions and what I call housekeeping functions. So if you go into any large um, office building, you will discover that the offices are cleaned at night. And that's not because people who clean offices can only function at night. It's because that's when the building's empty and it's convenient. Could have been done any time of the day or night. That's just the most convenient. And so that's when it's done. And of course, once it's done there, it's impossible to change it because everybody's used to that system and it just won't change. And, and so I think things like growth hormone, I think the brain said, hey, look, this guy is lying down for eight hours. What a great time to try to do a little bit of growing. I mean, if we want to get the spine to grow a little bit, probably would work better if they were lying down than if they were standing up and pounding around and walking all day long. Um, the immune system, you know, the endocrine system, it's like, okay, if, if everything's sort of shut down, okay, look, she's not going to eat any food for the next eight hours. It's a good time to work on endocrine function. We've got a nice stable condition here. Let's do it now. Um, so these I think of as housekeeping functions. But I suspect that you know, every organ system has developed some functions that it has decided work better when you're asleep. Um, not that they had to evolve that way, but they did. And so now that's, that's how we do it. One of the things we mentioned earlier too is, and that you touched on just now, are the endo, endocrine effects of sleep and sleep deprivation. One thing that you often hear 
people say is that you're not supposed to eat, you know, within an hour or two before going to bed. So can you talk a little bit more about the relationship between sleep and metabolism um, and perhaps touch on like some of the do's and don'ts with respect to things like eating right before you go to sleep? Oh, I'm, I'm stunned. I always eat before I go to bed. My wife always says, Bob, you really don't want to be eating that. I say, I know, I know, but I'm just going to have one more scoop, one more scoop. Um, I don't know that literature. I don't know that, that story. Um, I could understand why you don't want to go to bed with a very full stomach. It will certainly be uncomfortable. Um, but I don't know anything about how food is metabolized over sleep. Um, is it slowed down? Is it sped up? I just don't know. How did you first get into sleep research? Why did you choose to go into this area? Actually, because of the memory piece and the dreaming piece. Um, I've always been fascinated for, by dreams, I think for the same reason that everybody else is, that they're just, on the one hand, so crazy, and at the, on the other hand, sometimes so incredible powerful. Um, so I was just fascinated by them. And as a, as a cognitive neuroscientist, you know, we just didn't have a handle on it. So I was really curious about that. And I think that's what actually brought me in. I started out working with Alan Hobson, um, who had published some major theoretical papers about dreaming back in the, in the 70s. And actually, I've got a PhD in biochemistry. I uh, did my doctoral research on DNA replication in bacteria. So I've, I've just completely moved my field of study. Uh, and I know I was fascinated by the memory question, but I don't know that I was thinking about it in relationship to sleep. So I might say that it was the dream issue that, that really hooked me into it. And you mentioned earlier that REM sleep evolved later in evolutionary time. So does that mean that, that dreaming is also an evolutionarily newer phenomenon and that only certain types of animals are likely to have uh, sort of the classic, bizarre, highly emotional dream states? Well, yeah. So, so first of all, remember, we do dream through much of non-REM sleep. So that would be available. So mammals mm -hmm. and birds are pretty much it for clear-cut REM sleep. Um, lower animals and others besides birds on that branch uh, don't seem to have REM sleep. Although in the last few years, there's been talk of REM-like uh, sleep in, in other animals. Um, whether other animals dream really is a subset of the question, are other animals conscious? Right. I mean, this is this is something we could spend the next three hours talking about if you want. But I often um, disconcert my students by telling them that there has never been an experiment conducted that demonstrated that humans are conscious. We have no way of showing that humans or any other species are conscious. Now. Since you know that you're conscious and I know that I'm conscious through internal inspection, um, if we start saying, okay, humans are conscious, then we can say, okay, well, this person's in a coma, 
they're not conscious. This person is asleep. If they're conscious, it's a really altered form of consciousness. Uh, and uh, this person took these drugs and it knocked them out completely. They're unconscious now. But that all involves starting from the assumption that we're conscious. So you look at the dog who shows every sign in the world of being conscious and who shows every sign of dreaming with their feet running and them whimpering while they're asleep. And we know actually during REM sleep. Um, so they look like they're dreaming. And I think it's fair to sleep that if they're con to say that if they're conscious when they're awake, they're dreaming. Um, but that's, you know, you have, to, you have to make that assumption first. And then who all dreams? I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if all mammals end up turning out to dream. Although the dreaming will be obviously very different as you go lower um, in, 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 the, in the orders. I mean, I, I doubt that rats have anxiety dreams about how they're going to perform on the maze tomorrow. And they certainly don't worry about what their mother would have thought about them being in this experiment, right? In fact, I guess you just have to say that you'd have to look at what a given species is dealing with in their world, what their concerns would be, you know? And, and it's, it's from that that you would be able to guess what they dream about. So probably, you know, ducks probably dream about being predated and cats probably dream about being predators um, because those are the those are the concerns of their day where it might be worth identifying associated memories that could help them perform their tasks better the next day. On the subject of dreaming, I did want to ask you about unusual dream or sleep states. The one that really comes to mind that I don't think I've ever really experienced myself, but some people claim that this happens to them sometimes is the phenomenon of lucid dreaming, where you're asleep, you're not moving, you are in a dream state, you're definitely not awake, but you're simultaneously aware that you are asleep and dreaming. Is this a genuine phenomenon? And do we know anything about how this particular phenomenon arises? It's a real thing. It's been demonstrated over and over in scientific experiments despite the fact that many scientists who haven't experienced it themselves insist it couldn't possibly exist. Um, but it's very well documented. And again, uh, Ken Paller's lab at Northwestern University has now come up with protocols where they can pretty much take students off the street and get about a third of them to have a lucid dream in, in a single night. Um, so, Whereas before it was really thought maybe, you know, maybe only 5% or 2% of the population can do this on a regular basis. Um, it might be something that's trainable. It's, well, it's definitely something that's trainable. How do they do that training? Um, it largely involves learning to um, pay attention to cues. So, the, the older methods, I haven't really read Ken Paller's new technique, um, Q 
carefully. And I'm not sure that he's published the whole technique, but what, but what was classically done is they would say to you, well, okay, I want you to ask yourself every 10 minutes all day long, whether you're asleep. And don't just say, am I asleep? No, obviously not. Stop for a moment and say, how do I know I'm not asleep? Okay. And if you do that over and over all day long for a half dozen days, it becomes a concern. You start asking the question in your dream. And that's what does it. You know, you suddenly say, okay, is this a dream? Nah. Well, actually, where am I? How did I get here? What was I doing half an hour ago? I'm looking at a book. Can I actually read the book? So you, you learn to ask questions. First, you learn to question whether you're asleep, to ask the question. And then if you do, it's not that hard to figure out that you're dreaming. In fact, that's the funny thing, right? You wake up in the morning and you say, like, duh, how could I not have known that I was dreaming? I mean, I was in Paris with my father and my father's been dead for 20 years. Um, I was flying. I mean, these are not hard ones to figure out that I was, must have been dreaming. And, you know, I was in my bedroom at home and the next moment I was at the beach. I mean, I obviously was dreaming. So it's not so much the difficulty of figuring it out. It's the difficulty of recognizing to ask the question. And so they'll do that by um, having you ask the question a lot during the day. You can also get these goggles, which will flash a green light in your eyes every once in a while while you're sleeping. And you'll start to see green flashes in your dream. And that becomes, oh, wait, green flashes. I must be dreaming. Hmm. So that, that's, what's, that, that's how people are taught to be lucid dreamers. And then the big game is to try to stay in that state because lucid dreaming is a knife edge. It's a knife edge between waking up and falling back into non-lucid dreaming. And it's, it's a tricky edge to walk because if you get too excited by it, you'll wake yourself up. And if you say, okay, don't get too excited, you're, you're likely to slide back into non-lucid, to forget that you're dreaming. Um, and, and so, you know, people who are lucid dreamers become skilled at, at, at holding that knife edge. What's actually happening? Well, the prefrontal cortex, which is involved in executive control, logical decision-making, sort, of sort of the control center, center for cognitive activity, the, the prefrontal cortex, which is normally shut way down during REM sleep, starts to come back online. And so it becomes a classic parasomnia, where you're sort of part of your brain is awake while the rest of your brain is asleep. And we see that with lucid dreaming. We see that with sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis is when you wake up in the morning and you are literally paralyzed and hallucinating. 
And that's because when you are in REM sleep, your body is paralyzed. Otherwise, you would act out your dreams in REM sleep. Um, so you're paralyzed. And your brain, you know, now the frontal cortex has woken up completely and you're awake and you know you're lying in bed in your bedroom. Um, but lower brain stem regions that are controlling that paralysis haven't shut off yet. And in fact, the hallucinatory process is still going on. So you get these hallucinations with your eyes open, which means they're hallucinations that happen in your bedroom. And they very often involve seeing people or strangers or monsters come into your bedroom. In fact, there's very good data that suggests that all the alien abduction uh, people are in fact misinterpreting sleep paralysis um, because alien abductions always come with an awakening from sleep, usually involve people being reporting that they've been paralyzed by these aliens hmm. and they see these strange creatures in their, in their bedroom. Back in the dark ages, they saw the same things, but they thought that they were, that they thought that they were devils or angels. So the phenomenon is, is robust across at least the last five or 600 years, but the interpretation of it um, is completely socially determined. But again, part of the brain is awake while the rest of the brain is asleep, a parasomnia um, similar to sleepwalking or sleep talking. Again, when you're sleepwalking, your brain's awake enough that you can make it to the stairs and down the stairs and into the kitchen without waking up. But, but you know, huge parts of your brain remain asleep. Hmm. I don't know the statistics, but I do know it's become more common over time for people to use pharmaceuticals to assist them in getting sleep. So sleeping pills, things like Ambien. Those clearly help people get to sleep and keep them knocked out. But do they differ? Oh, no, it's not no. true. Um, well, at least with the SSRIs, um, you get more awakenings. But you're talking, you know, they are right with the standard hypnotics, ambient and such, helps you fall asleep faster. Not all that much faster, but <laughs> some faster. Helps you stay asleep. And the cost is a real decrease in the amount of REM sleep you get, and often a decrease in the amount of slow-wave sleep, that deep sleep that you're getting. Hmm. So from the point of view of a memory researcher, it's a disaster because those are the times when you're doing most of your memory processing. Um, and there's been some studies with, with Ambien and the like that show that sleep-dependent memory consolidation can be impaired. And again, it's a funny story because if you're talking about that finger tapping task, the amount of improvement you show depends on how much light non-REM sleep you get late in the night. So if you take Ambien that suppresses REM sleep, you get more of that light non-REM sleep to make up for it. And you actually show more improvement on the finger tapping task. But if it was a REM-dependent task, you, you would be in deep trouble. And, and even more trouble is the fact that these drugs effectively clamp you into a sleep architecture so that you can't, your brain no longer has the ability 
to shift the amount of different sleep stages to match its needs. Hmm. So I, I always push for uh, cognitive behavioral approaches to, to sleep problems, uh, if at all possible. Interesting. Um, that's good advice. What, um, what do you think are some of the most interesting areas of sleep research that are on the horizon over the next couple of years that we'll start to learn more about? You want to know the worst one? So, um, Coors Beer. So, one of the big areas of, of research now are ways to manipulate sleep um, non-pharmacologically. And this can involve electrodes put on the scalp that inject very small amounts of current that might be delivered at those slow speeds of the slow waves of deep sleep. And that can increase the amount of slow wave sleep you get that can increase your performance on the French verbs across the night because that depends on how much slow wave sleep you get. Um, Adam Horowitz of MIT at the Media Lab uh, has been working with me and has developed a method of doing what he calls targeted dream incubation, where he can manipulate the content of your dreams in that sleep onset period. And you remember I said, they get more than 80% reports of dream content if they wake people up. And he's interested in using that to foster creativity, but Coors Beer is using it too. And for the Super Bowl this year, Coors ran this advertisement where they tried to get people to watch a video about Coors beer and mountain streams and flowing water and lakes and, and, and beautiful scenery together with music and then have people play that music again while they slept. I would argue to try to get people to become trained to buy Coors beer. So a little Kafka-esque um, work being done there. And there are a couple of other companies that are looking at this targeted dream incubation um, as ways to manipulate market share. And at the moment, it's sort of benign in the sense that, uh, you know, you have to agree to do it. You have to watch the video. You have to keep the tape running all night. But 30 million Americans have Alexis in their bedroom now. Mm -hmm. So this is literally like the movie Inception. A little bit like that. <laughs> I mean, here's a funny question. If you are someone who has an Alexa in your bedroom, what is it doing while you're asleep? Hmm. And the answer is you have no idea. And that could be scary. So, you know, there's there's a little chance for abuse there of, of sleep manipulation, of dream manipulation, um, and a lot of potential for good. Adam's talking about working. He is starting to work with some clinical psychiatrists to see if it can be used with people with PTSD mm -hmm. to help them process those memories by queuing them up at sleep onset for later in that process and uh, the same thing for treating um, anxiety, 
nightmares. So it, it's potentially a valuable tool, as are all of these things. And as with most really valuable tools, they carry a potential risk of, of misuse. Mm-hmm. So that's that's some of the, uh, at least some of the sexiest work going on, these attempts to um, manipulate sleep stages and, and dream content. Um, what else is going on? I think there's more work going on looking at these non-brain-based consequences of sleep to try to help figure out how widely uh, the body depends on on that sleep. And what about, so you mentioned PTSD. One of the things I was curious about are neuropsychiatric conditions like PTSD where one of the symptoms is highly disturbing, highly emotional dreams and nightmares that people might have. So we've mentioned a lot about the benefits of REM sleep with respect to certain types of memory processing. Are there any cases like PTSD where it might actually be beneficial to suppress either REM sleep or another stage of sleep in order to prevent bad dreams essentially from happening? I think the exact opposite is true. I've actually written a couple of papers on this. I think PTSD is a sleep disorder. Hmm. I think it's a breakdown of all those processes which almost entirely happen in REM sleep um, that we've we've seen. We've seen that in in REM sleep, um, the brain processes emotional memories. Um, It can help the brain hold on to the core of a memory, but forget all the peripheral details, something that doesn't happen in PTSD patients. Uh, It can help the brain integrate new information, emotional information with existing networks of of older memories, something that fails in in PTSD. Um, It might be that the kind of so, so PTSD is basically a memory disorder. I mean, you have a, a, a traumatic event and it forms a memory. And it's the impact of that memory on you. It's the failure of you to get past, right, get past the memory. And what it means to get past the memory is to take it out of isolation and allow it to become integrated with all the other information you have about yourself, all your other memories all your sense of self before that traumatic event so that, A, you you become more relaxed in terms of who you are in relationship to the trauma, but also more importantly, so that you understand going forward um, how to be safe, how to avoid a reenactment. Uh, You know, the the feature of uh, PTSD dreams is that People with PTSD report that they dream the traumatic event over and over again in near precise replication. And that's something that never happens in normal people. We actually had a paper out, you know, less than less than 2% of the time that people think they know the source of something in their dream. Is that dream element, does it look like, even look like a replication of what happened during wake? And I think that that failure um, to metaphorize, to to abstract the the traumatic memory in the dream 
is, is a biological marker of the brain's failure to process it, that at a time when it should be bringing up remote associates to this event, to think about other times you've been driving in a car, other times that you've been out with men when horrible things didn't happen. So you can sort of put that together with this traumatic event. Instead, you just keep replaying that trauma memory. Um, that failure to let that kind of weak association um, arise might be a, a, a significant contributor to the development of PTSD. And of course, we know with PTSD that your brain doesn't ever shut off the norepinephrine at night. Hmm. The, the brain stays hyper alert. It, it, it knows or it believes that it's not safe to relax. Um, and so that norepinephrine stays even during REM sleep, which would block that ability of the brain to do that kind of work. And it's the same as as if you were in therapy about this, you know, if you're in therapy about a trauma, you can't just keep telling your therapist what happened over and over again. Mm -hmm. I see. I didn't know that about PTSD and norepinephrine. So you mentioned earlier in the discussion that normally during REM sleep, norepinephrine basically shuts off or shuts way down. Yes. And for people who aren't familiar with neuromodulators, you could think of neuro norepinephrine at least in a simplified way, as the modulator that's very much responsible for paying attention and being alert and being focused on particular things right in front of you. And so is it fair to say that in PTSD, norepinephrine levels are staying up during REM and more or less you're in a state of hypervigilance and that's one of the physiological markers of it? Yeah. yeah. And so your brain can't go out and find when it's trying to construct the dream, when it's looking for, okay, I've got this very important concern, this traumatic event. Uh, let me look for associates to it. It keeps coming back to the trauma memory itself mm -hmm. rather than moving out through these, you know, these incredibly complex networks of associated memories to find other relevant information that might be helpful for learning to, to cope with and understand that, that trauma event. Hmm. Um, are there any final thoughts about sleep that you want to leave people with before we tie this up? Yeah, it's an incredibly exciting time, first of all, to be a sleep researcher. 20 years ago, Alan Hobson, a, a noted sleep researcher, um, was quoted as saying that the only known function of sleep was to cure sleepiness. We literally had no idea at all at the turn of the century what sleep was for, which parenthetically is sort of fascinating because all of our other major drives, you know, things like thirst, hunger, breathing, sex, I mean, all of these, we, you know, we do them because we feel a drive to do them. We feel we need to do them. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a conscious drive to do these things. But we knew their biological functions a thousand years ago. I mean, a thousand years ago, people understood you don't just eat to cure hunger. You eat because if you don't eat, you will be malnourished and your, your, your body won't grow and you won't have energy to do things. And, and we know that if you don't drink, you know, you'll become parched and eventually, you know, you'll die of thirst. I mean, 
all of these things were well known a thousand years ago. And yet just 20 years ago, we had no agreed upon functions for sleep. So everything I've talked about uh, on your show has been about the last 20 years worth of research. And I don't think we have a clue where it's going to go in the next 20. Fascinating. Well, Professor Stickold, thank you for taking the time. And it was, it was a real pleasure talking to you. This was fascinating. And I enjoyed it as well. Take care. Stay well. 